Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Upon the news of the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, the already fractured and fractious American political debate just finally broke apart. Seething and spiteful scorn lit up Twitter as the left gave a send-off to a man they saw as a supervillain. Meanwhile, the right hardened and hid its copy of the Constitution that Scalia held dear. They said they wouldn't entertain any nominee put forward by President Obama during an election year. Obama yesterday took some exception. There's no unwritten law that says that it can only be done on off years. That's not in the constitutional text. So today, where we live in the midst of what was already the craziest election year anyone can remember, we've got something that's approaching a constitutional crisis. And that's where we'll start today's Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Coming up, uh, up later in the show, Governor Dan Malloy is on a town hall tour of the state, taking questions about looming budget cuts. We will talk about that in advance of Governor Malloy's appearance on the show tomorrow. But first, let me welcome in our panelists. Colin McEnroe is the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello once again, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankowski. Dan Clough is a lawyer who writes about the law at appealinglybrief.com. Hi, Dan. Good to see you. Good morning, John. And also with us is Keith Vanoff. He's the state budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Hi once again, Keith. Thanks for having me. And Daniela Altamari, state house reporter for the Hartford Current. Hi there, Daniela. Hi. So let's start with you, Colin. We're just going to go around the table here because I'm, I'm sure everyone has some reactions to this. You did your show yesterday on various aspects that we have to consider around the death of Antonin Scalia and what it means. Coming out of those conversations and some of the other things, what are the things that are on your mind right now on this Wednesday, just a few days after this earth-shattering news? I guess one thing that's on my mind is, you know, one of the ironies or paradoxes of separation of powers uh, and, and checks and balances is that occasionally you can't compel one of the branches of government to do something that it really ought to do. So right now what we have is is the Senate uh, acting, I mean, it's sort of like I know Keith likes analogies uh, and metaphors, uh, so it's like you're in the po- if you if you've ever been in the post office line with your toddler who starts screaming and sitting down and you know refusing to cooperate and stuff like that, and you're not the kind of person who's going to hit your kid. Uh, you, there's not much you can do, really. You might have to leave the post office, <laughs> even though you have every right to uh, be in the post office line and transact your business. And that's kind of where we are right now. And, and I think, unfortunately, this happens more and more in, in the era of the Tea Party. Uh, and the era of vast lack of cooperation. So, I mean, by by all rights, this should be proceeding exactly as the president suggests. Uh, the Constitution's on his side. History's on his side as well. I think there have been five uh, Supreme Court vacancies that were conceived in the first quarter of an, ele- of an election year, and all five of them were filled. Uh, I mean, there's a, no reason not to at least proceed with this and, and, and have a nominee and have hearings and, and have an up or down vote. But, uh, and I think that's probably going to happen. There, there does seem to be a little cracking in the resolve. Mitch McConnell may have spoken too hastily. Uh, 
uh, I, I think uh, they're, they're uh, <laughs> within 30 seconds, I think, of the news breaking right. in Texas. So I, I think there's a little crack in the resolve. I, I think you probably will see a nominee. You'll see hearings. You'll see an up or down vote. People will have to go on the record about this. I don't think you'll see a new Supreme Court justice. David Yaloff on my show suggested it probably would be the first Monday in October 2017. I, I will say, and this is not an original thought, certainly, but it's you, you mentioned the Tea Party. I don't think, Colin, it's it's fair to say that this would only happen in the current set of political circumstances. I think almost anyone who watches politics right now would say that if in the last year of the, the George uh, Bush administration there had been something similar happening to one of the liberal justices in the court, probably we would have seen almost exactly the same reaction from the left. He thinks it had devolved pretty badly by then. <laughs> so, yeah, you're probably right. Uh, Dan Clow, of course, we have you here in part because you're an expert in some of these things. There's a lot to talk about with you. But what are your first uh, initial reactions about the things we should be thinking about right now? Well, I think what everybody needs to understand is just how important the spot that has been created by Justice Scalia's death is for the nation. We are talking about a court that has had a conservative majority for nearly 50 years. The death of Justice Scalia gives uh, President Obama and, and the Democrats an opportunity to change the balance of the court by appointing a more, quote, liberal justice. So the ramifications of of Justice Scalia's death extend far beyond this uh, this particular court, far beyond this election. We're talking about a generational shift in power on the Supreme Court. And that's why I think this will be a death match, political death match, unlike one we have seen for, for a long time. Just one thing, though, that I, I'd like your take on is when we talk about the balance of the court, I guess I'm just wondering if it undersells the importance of Justice Scalia's place. It's almost like saying, well, the Yankees are going to replace Babe Ruth with another left-handed hitting outfielder. I mean, is there something specific about the Scalia place on the court, not just the balance of power right and left? Well, I mean, Justice Scalia was perhaps the foremost advocate for a particular approach to interpreting the Constitution and statutory text, something called uh, originalism, which we can talk about later. But he is one of five, uh, well, four guaranteed reliable conservative votes on a lot of decisions that we see come down 5-4 over the past decades. By replacing a reliable conservative vote with a reliable liberal vote, if you will, we will see many decisions that would have gone one way, which would make a lot of people unhappy, go the other way. Uh, and just quickly to a tweet that Jeremy sends us, wouldn't Scalia's own arguments chastise the idea of dismissing the rules of the Constitution because of current politics? This idea of originalism, Dan, uh, would seemingly suggest that it's it's right and proper for the president of the United States to appoint someone who is then speedily confirmed by the Senate of the United States. Well, I agree with the first half. I mean, there's no question the Constitution uh, says that the president shall nominate somebody. But the this is a purely political process. It was designed that way by the framers, and it's going to play out that way in real time before our very eyes. The, the Senate is not under a constitutional obligation to, uh, to confirm anybody. It doesn't have to hold hearings. There are all sorts of norms and conventions that suggest it ought to, but it doesn't have to, and I think it, it is going to use um, it, that latitude to uh, uh, the way it best sees fit from a political perspective. Keith, from your perspective with the things that you cover, I mean, what, what does all this mean for you? Yeah, well, Colin kind of stole my answer, but not my analogy. Um, <laughs> I, you know, when you're 
<clears throat> when you're young and you're taking civics class, you get this uh, – you come away with this reverential view of our system and you're, you're taught that the transition of power in the, in the United States is so different from the rest of the world and you think there are these processes that are universally respected at least in this country and then you get a little older and you, you, know, you learn about FDR's court packing plan and you realize, OK, people will, will use politics to push the envelope and I think that's you know, what, what people are worried about here. But there is a price on that and that is – I think it's just very disheartening. I just – I know as someone who doesn't follow that closely when I think, OK, you know, if, if, if the process isn't respected, and I think there's some implication that it should be done in, in, a, in a reasonable time frame. Like Dan points out, it, there's no requirement. But when it doesn't happen, the first thing it makes me think is, all right, you know, if I didn't do this for a living, I wouldn't want to follow what's going on in Congress I, because I just I, I'm disappointed. It's not what I was what I was taught to expect. I think a lot of Americans feel let down when they see things like that. Uh, Keith is disappointed in America. I don't like to hear that. Daniela, how about you? I mean, what, what, what's what's the take where you sit? Well, I think uh, in some ways you could argue maybe it's a it's a big boon for the Democrats because you know if they if they're seen as you know the party that just wants to move forward with this and the Republicans are stalling and putting up uh, roadblocks and and all kinds of tactics. That's I mean I can already see the fundraisers from you know the state party or from you know Dick Blumenthal's campaign that you know this is you know Republican obstructionism and all that. So you know. It, it could play out in their favor as well. Um, I think Obama raised the very point you you raised uh, yesterday in his press conference where he said, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution that says, you know, the president can't make this appointment, uh, you know, can only make this appointment in certain years or can't make this appointment when he's a lame duck or whatever. There's nothing uh, in the Constitution that says that. And he sort of turned the tables, as you pointed out, on, you know, these strict constitutionalists who say, you know, we're going to play games with this anyway. Well, I, I would like to get to something we were talking about yesterday, Colin. I want to get to some phone calls, too, at 860-275-7266. You were thinking about, for your program yesterday, talking through these issues about some of the game theory involved, about when to uh, uh, when to appoint. Is there something to a recess appointment? Is there it, How do the, the Democrats and the Republicans play this out? And one of the things I'm thinking about is in this year in which we see this rise of Donald Trump and this rise of Bernie Sanders and an enormous amount of young people coming to the polls saying that the system that we all talk about so much is just kind of broken and they don't care about it anymore. I mean, does the idea of game theory in Congress and in Washington really work anymore? I mean, might this all play out in a very different way with the people on the ground and the um, and the situation we have on the ground in this very unusual election year? Yeah, and I think my answer will be based a little, a little bit less on game theory and a little bit more on pure politics. So, I mean, one of the the truisms is that in Republican presidential uh, campaigns, the Supreme Court is a top of mind issue. Uh, they talk a lot about the Supreme Court. Uh, Democrats tend less to focus less on the Supreme Court. That's just sort of the way that it's been. And I think you're about to see that change. In other words, the Supreme Court, first of all, it's been amazing to me the degree to which the, sh the focus has shifted. I mean, we've been, you know, quite justifiably obsessed with the way the presidential campaign is playing out on both sides uh, and our conversations have been very much about that. And now suddenly we're talking about something else, but that something else will feed back into presidential politics. So whoever emerges as the Democratic nominee will run very heavily on this issue and, and in a way that maybe doesn't coordinate all that well with the way the Supreme Court really works. I mean, everybody in the country hates Citizens United, right? There aren't too many people who are crazy about that. So you, and certainly Bernie Sanders that plays right 
right into his rhetoric uh, that you would have a chance to appoint a Supreme Court nominee who might, over the long haul, take quite a, quite a long time, do something about that. But that meanwhile, this process is being subverted in a fairly cynical uh, and political way. So, yeah, I think it does become a campaign issue uh, in a way that's not typical. Usually it's a campaign issue for Republicans who have strong ideological reasons for, for wanting a certain kind of Supreme Court. Um, and Democrats should have the obverse of those reasons. They just tend not to talk about it as much, but I think they will now. Of course, you, you say most people probably don't like Citizens United. Remember, corporations are people, Colin, and so corporations <laughs> may have a different view most of this. People. <laughs> most people. I mean, at this point, yesterday there was this kind of funny exchange, Dan, in the press conference that, gov- uh, that uh, President Obama held uh, in which you know he lays out the fact that he will make uh, a nomination relatively soon, and the questioner said, well, does that, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that you will, uh, you know, nominate someone who is a moderate. He goes, no, I know not necessarily. So, so who is it we're looking at? I mean, someone who will actually be nominated here and go through what could be just one of the most gruesome processes ever. Uh, well, boy, this, you know, I'm sure the betting lines in Vegas on this issue, have got, <laughs> there's a lot of money riding on this. Everybody and his mother, her mother, is speculating on who the president's nominee will be and what the politically astute choice should be. Should you pick a moderate? Um, should you pick somebody who is recently confirmed by the Senate? There are several judges who were appointed to circuit courts um, and received 97 to 0 you know, votes with approval. And if you nominate somebody like that, wouldn't uh, the Republicans have egg on their face if they suddenly had objections? I honestly have no idea what the, the you know, who the president will, will appoint. But I do think it is very likely that he will appoint somebody that he feels absolutely confident is going to be a reliable um, liberal uh, vote on the court. And to, to that end, uh, Senator Chuck Grassley uh, yesterday didn't totally reject the idea of actually holding a Judiciary Committee hearing on a nominee. Let's listen. Uh, I would wait until uh, the nominee uh, is made before I would make any decisions. So, so it sounds like the, the door is kind of cracked open a little bit there, Colin. And, and that brings into play uh, someone uh, here who we all know pretty well. Senator Richard Blumenthal is on the Judiciary Committee, uh, not exactly a senior member of that committee, but certainly may play a role in all this. So if it gets to the Senate Judiciary Committee and they're actually vetting a nominee, that does say something at least about you know getting in the way of Mitch McConnell's obstructionism. My, my guess is that McConnell didn't talk to Grassley before he made his pronouncement. That's what I hear in Grassley's voice. Like, well, you didn't ask me and this is my committee and this is, this is where we're going to do it. <laughs> no, no, not to put too fine a point in it. He literally I mean, within an, within the hour mm. of the news of Antonin Scalia dying, we, we, we heard from Mitch McConnell. And so I, I don't think he talked to many people, including maybe even his family. So Grassley even has a candidate in his own backyard, Jane Kelly, who's been approved in the, uh, the, with the kind of vote that, uh, that Dan is just talking about, is a circuit court judge who's already gone through a f- approval. I think one, one thing that I hadn't thought about until yesterday, I was listening to Slate's David Plotz ask this uh, of other experts, is, you know, it's not axiomatic that the first person you ask is going to say, yes, this is going to be an ugly job. You know, I mean, you are probably going to be sitting there, first of all, going through a grueling confirmation process in which you'll probably be rejected. Um, and you're, you're going to wind up being 
a kind of historical footnote is maybe not the, quite the right word, but you're going to be uh, become wind up becoming a symbol of something as opposed to probably a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> so, or so, like a, like a verb, like to bork someone. Right. Exactly. So not everybody yeah. is going to want this job. It may take a little work getting somebody talked into it, unless there's an actual path to confirmation, uh, or unless there's some kind of agreement. Well, we'll put you back up uh, if uh, Clinton or Sanders gets reelected. You can have another crack at this. So I think somebody may end up being a sacrificial lamb. But one thing about Grassley's announcement that's interesting to me is I, I think there's going to be this constant feedback, political feedback loop in this process. Uh, you know, Daniela made the point, which I agree with completely, that that this could um, seriously energize Democrats uh, when they go to the polls in November as they realize the significance of this. But it could also energize conservatives. And the question is, what's the net effect of that energy going to be? Is this going to be a net plus for conservatives, a net plus you know, uh, for, for Democrats? And nobody can say that for certainty how, that, how to answer that question now. But if you get let the ball begin to roll, the president announces a nominee, and then you st- begin to have hearings, and then you start doing polls and checking with people on see how it's working out um, in, uh, on the streets – you can, as a party, begin to adjust how you play this game. So I I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see a a sort of iterated uh, game here as as people react to the public's response to the way the politicians are acting. I I want to quickly get a phone call. Levi's calling from West Hartford. Hi there, Levi. Hi. uh, I I just wanted to say that I I, uh, really enjoy your show, and uh, my initial response to this was, why on earth would President Obama waste his time? The GOP has firm control of the Senate. And I really hope, ideally I'd love to see a justice put through who would work his hardest to augment liberty, justice in this country. But even if we found someone like that, first of all, what are the odds that President Obama will put someone forward that the Senate would deem a reasonable replacement for someone like Scalia? And even if he did, what are the odds that the GOP would trust that the president had done such a thing? It's a, well, Levi, it's a great question. A quick thought, Colin? Well, as a political calculation, you want to put a face on all this. So it's one thing for Mitch McConnell to categorically say I, nobody's going to be approved in between now and the election of a new president. It's another thing to say, Sri Srinivasan, you're not going to be approved. And a whole bunch of things kick in here. First of all, you get to know that person. You see that person. That person is now a human being to you. Uh, there are a number of people who come from significant minority constituencies who could conceivably, if you wanted to go a somewhat cynical route, be nominated to put that kind of face on it so that once again the Republicans are saying to a minority group, uh-uh. No, you're not going to be a Supreme Court justice. So for lots of nakedly political calculations, uh, there are reasons to, to follow this process all the way through. And and I think, you know, back to Dan's original point, there's also just the point that it's the way it's supposed to happen. So let's do as much of what's supposed to happen as we possibly can. It's the way it's supposed to happen. So clearly that's what we're going to do in American politics. Uh, Daniello, I mentioned Richard Blumenthal. I mean, this could be a very interesting year. So we've already got a guy who has almost unassailable uh, approval ratings. Uh, we just heard this week that, uh, that Larry Kudlow, uh, the television talker, who was poised to maybe challenge him for a Senate seat is now bowing out of that. 
And now we have the specter, perhaps, of, of uh, Senator Blumenthal being on some of the most high-profile Judiciary Committee hearings of all time. What does this all mean for Dick Blumenthal? Yeah, more TV time, perhaps, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more. Have you talked he to anybody? That, too. He, I, he really hates the television time. <laughs> have you talked to anybody close to him at all? I mean, other than what he said on M- MSNBC, has he said much about this? Well, yeah, he weighed in almost immediately. I think he was the first member of the delegation to put out a statement after Scalia, uh, after it was confirmed that Scalia had died. And then he put out something yesterday, again, you know, basically saying, you know, listen to Grassley, um, you know, we need to we need to move forward with this. And, you know, the Grassley's party should listen to him, uh, basically. Um, but, you know, in some ways, I mean, yeah, he's, you know, he's up for re-election. Um, this, this, is his, this is his thing, you know, being on the Judiciary Committee. So, we will definitely. You're right. We'll be seeing a lot more of him. But, but before we turn off of this this issue, I should just ask you, Dan. You you you've met Justice Scalia in the past, right? Oh, I sat five or six feet away from him. That's yeah. about the closest I've come to. And, him, and a in lot the case. of a lot of people are coming forward with their Justice Scalia stories. I mean, do you, as someone who does this professionally and who views uh, the court as something that you are looking to constantly in your in your in your work. I mean, what are your impressions now, a few days after we we hear the death of Justice Scalia about about the man and the jurist? Well, so I really like the fact that you divided that between the man and the jurist. Okay, There's a wonderful uh, piece in the current today by, I think, the, your vice president. Our Dean, boss. Your boss, Dean Miller, who talks about this this 20-year uh, nice, warm friendship that he had with the, uh, you know, with Justice Scalia. So I think there's almost universal opinion that the man, Nino Scalia, as his friends called him, was a warm, generous uh, you know, a family man, a man who cared about his country, truly lived the American dream coming from very, um, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, a relatively poor background to becoming an associate justice. So no controversy about Nino the man. Antonin Scalia, the Supreme Court justice, was one of the most divisive figures ever to sit on the Supreme Court. And the question is, will history remember him for his intellectual brilliance or his vitriolic dissents? Uh, And that's where he spent most of his time. People, you know, he has a tremendous reputation, but he is not a justice who authored a lot of leading opinions. He wrote dissents where he, uh, you know, took pot shots at his colleagues when they dared to disagree with him. Well, and that's why, Colin, I mean, and we'll finish on this. You and I have had some conversations. You've put some things out uh, in, on your blog, and there's been a lot of really nasty talk um, coming from both sides about this. I guess I'm just wondering if, if you can talk through this from your perspective a little bit, because there is a man who clearly uh, people loved as a person, but then there's an awful lot of people I'm hearing from from the LGBT community, from the uh, African-American community, who say the things he wrote in his dissents made me sound less than fully human, and that truly is something that I can never completely forgive. That I'm, I'm putting that all on one side. On the other side, what Dan just said about the role of his dissents, it's almost like you know the basketball announcer who always just has something nasty to say about the players today, but you know it's not real. It's kind of for show. I mean, how much of Anthony Scalia's dissents, this nasty rhetoric, was it for real, and should we really take seriously? And how much, how much of it was just bluster? Well, I mean, first of all, I think this the, that occurs across an arc of history. Uh, towards the end of his time on the court, he, there was a kind of a Limbaugh. I, I can't turn I can't turn that into a verb, but Limbaughization uh, uh, of Scalia. He started to. Kind 
kind of believe his own press clippings, and the dissents got more acerbic and intemperate. Uh, so down the last three or four years, he started, and of course that's what people remember is the last three or four years uh, of your life, <laughs> life and your tenure. To me, the question isn't really what did he deserve. The question is who do we want to be? You know, and you and I have talked about this a lot. That I mean, you could take somebody considerably worse than Antonin Scalia, whose decisions and rhetoric may have caused people certain kinds of harm. But I mean, you know, I, like I wouldn't want to be the person out in Times Square dancing with joy over the death of Osama bin Laden, a considerably more nefarious and destructive person than Antonin Scalia. Not because Osama bin Laden doesn't deserve that kind of treatment from me, but because I don't want to be that kind of person. So as we talk about the coarsening of our rhetoric, for which Antonin Scalia bears some responsibility, he does. There, there's no way in which a further coarsening of our rhetoric, scorching Scalia with his own flames, helps that situation very much. I mean, in an odd way, the best revenge against Antonin Scalia would be to be better than you thought he was rhetorically. Uh, we're talking with Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show. Dan Clow, a lawyer who writes about the law at appealinglybrief.com. Daniela Altamari from the Hartford Current. Keith Vanner from the Connecticut Mirror. When we come back, we're going to get into Daniela and Keith's wheelhouse. You're going to be talking about a budget tour from Governor Daniel Malloy, talking about the big cuts that are looming. You can join us, 860-275-7266. It's The Wheelhouse on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today it's Wednesday, so it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. In The Wheelhouse with us is Danielle Altamari, Statehouse reporter for the Hartford Current, the budget guru from the Connecticut Mirror, Keith Faniff, Dan Clow from appealinglybrief.com, and our own Colin McEnroe. What's on your show this afternoon, Colin? We're going to be doing a show. Uh, well, Betsy Kaplan, the producer of our show, is a former nurse, so every once in a while she... Uh, wants us to do a show about a medical question. We're going to do a show about heart health. Uh, there's a lot of new research. Everything that your mother told you about how to take care of your body turns out to be at least slightly wrong. So, uh, And also about how to do CPR and all kinds of things like that. So oh, excellent. We'll bring you all up to date on your heart. It's, it's heart health month. Are you doing right a CPR training on the, on the air today? No, but I think I think Betsy Kaplan does know how to do all that stuff. Excellent. So. Maybe we should. I'm be, counting on we that. Could, anyway. <laughs> we might have to use it later on. Uh, that's coming up at 1 o'clock on the Colin McEnroe Show. Governor Dan Malloy has been traveling around the state in his latest round of town hall meetings to talk about the budget. His first stop was in Stanford. He made an admission toward the end. I'm an imperfect governor. I'm an imperfect messenger. I'm, I'm uh, imperfect in, in many different ways. But I'm working really hard to find the right balance, and I don't believe the right balance includes raising taxes at this time. There's and a Gilbert and Sullivan song in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, Dan Clough probably Dan can, can sing for us too. later. <laughs> um, look, so there's a lot to talk about here, Keith and Daniela, about the, about the budget and what we're hearing from, from Governor Malloy. But first of all, just this admission, I mean, when we hear a governor who has, you know, for years now, kind of bitten back at people who've, uh, who've criticized him, for him to say, I'm an imperfect messenger, I'm an imperfect governor, doing the best I can. I mean, what do you make of this, Keith? You name one time, one time he bit back. <laughs> now, now. I'm sorry. I, I couldn't resist. It's like I've been waiting in line at the post office. And uh, yeah. the, the kid starts crying. <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but what do you make of it? I mean, this is, there's two different things here. One is there's the message, and then there's the way the message is coming across. The message is, and it was outlined in his State of the State address, which, you know, had a whole bunch of new budget cuts in it and a whole lot of pain to go around. But then there's the way he's delivering the message. He's going to be on our program here tomorrow. You can certainly call us in tomorrow and ask him questions. He's doing these town hall meetings, and he's saying things like, look, guys, I'm doing the best I can here. I'm not perfect. That is a, a different package 
for this governor to deliver. Yeah, it's the, the, the message was crafted in the land of welcome to the fact that you no longer have a choice. The governor is boxed in by numbers that you really can't move much anymore. I mean, we are literally getting to the point where this, this year alone, just our pension costs and our bonded debt, one-fifth of the budget grew by 11 percent and everything else. And there's a lot in that everything else. State employee raises had to share 2 percent of an increase, which meant most places got cut. And now if you're trying to say in this post-GE world we're not going to raise taxes, they're off the table. He is trying to find a way to say as our debt continues to expand over the next decade and a half and eats up all the growth in the budget, if we can't raise taxes, you're going to be looking at tremendous cuts. Now, he's not going around saying that. He's just taking the first step and he's, he's trying to be a little more humble and trying to say, OK, I need your guidance. But all the cards are still not on the table. We're talking about dramatically reshaping government. And even if we do, there's still no way we get through the next 15 years without regular tax increases. Well, and so there you go, Daniela. This is the thing. He's continually saying we're not going to have tax increases. But as Keith has been laying out, not just recently, but for years now, this is a problem that is much bigger than our ability to solve by just cutting government, it seems. And so do we now start having conversations at these town hall meetings and maybe in the state legislature, which you cover, about we got to find revenue somewhere. Uh, yeah. I mean, as Keith said, there's no choice, right? W- what else can they do? I mean, cuts are only going to get you so far. And um, there are just real limits. On the other hand, you know, he raised taxes already, and it, that was hugely unpopular, obviously. Um, so, you know, they're, they're in a real tough spot. But how much, and Keith, you mentioned this earlier to me, though, too, how much does the specter of GE hang o- hanging over this actually change the game as far as what we can talk about legitimately at the legislature? If indeed we're going to make such a big deal about this behemoth corporation, which used to be somewhere else, was in Connecticut for a while, and now is going to go somewhere else, a big corporation that doesn't, frankly, pay very much in taxes anyway, um, are we going to let this hang over us and say, we got to make sure that we don't lose another GE uh, before we make some big changes here? I think GE changed the situation, but I'm not sure it changed it as much as people think. I mean, Lori Pelletier from the AFL-CIO said it poisoned the well. And I get that in the sense that it's got everybody now saying taxes are off the table. Well, that's easy to say until you start talking about the alternatives. They're not having a full, honest discussion about the alternatives. They're talking about over the next two years of the governor is taking 15 percent on average out of what he's calling discretionary. But discretionary is everything from all non-Medicaid social services and health care to all non-education municipal aid. Um, they're even including uh, state employee payroll costs in discretionary, which certainly implies layoffs if you're not getting massive concessions. I mean unprecedented concessions. The deficit after the election is the equivalent of nine wage freezes. To give you an idea, I mean concessions won't <laughs> solve it. So it's OK to say – Taxes are off the table. But until you're really talking, you can't talk about that in a vacuum. I think when people really start to see the services that go away and the changes in state government, um, I I still don't – I can't run the numbers and and see them do a budget 12 months from now that doesn't include new revenue. Well, and before I hear from Colin, I'll just say, you know, at this town hall in Stanford, 10-year-old Sammy Goldman asked uh, Governor Malloy about funding cuts to the organization called Kids in Crisis to help children in troubled homes. You're only hurting the kids. These kids are scared and lonely and have nowhere to go. You are taking away the only safe place for them to go. 
The world is scary enough that they shouldn't have to be scared or worried in their own homes. Please reconsider giving them their money back that you took away. Oh, no. (laughs) That's 10-year-old Sammy Goldman essentially asking the governor not to take away the money for kids in crisis. Oh, my goodness. I mean, look, there's a, there's an awful lot of things we can we can say about what the conversation is going to be like at the state at the state capitol this year. But we start having 10 year old girls saying, please don't take my money away. I mean, what do you say to that? Well, one good thing is that Dan Malloy is uniquely psychologically equipped to say no to Sammy. Uh, <laughs> like a lot of people would have trouble doing that. But um uh, I think we've really all seen not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> we've all seen him in moments where he's somehow or there's someone the will to do do things like that. So, uh, you know, it's not GE, it's JC, it's Joe Citizen. That's the problem. All right, GE first of all didn't leave because of its taxes anyway. It's Joe Citizen, and, and it's Joe Citizen who you know is one of the points that, that Dan Malloy's been making lately is that our recovery has uh, included a high percentage of low wage jobs. There's just people out there who don't have enough money for you to be able to raise the price of government. Um, um, I mean, it really is going to be a, a very different, difficult thing politically and economically. Uh, and so, you know, and I agree. I mean, Keith put it perfectly. He's boxed in. You look at these numbers and it's incredible. Two billion dollars in debt service. How does something like that happen? The, the price of government, unfortunately, it's just I disagree just in, in terms of tense. I, I, I don't disagree with Colin, especially since he complimented me. But um, – the price of government's already been raised. We just are waiting for the bill. The bill's in the mail. Mm-hmm. I mean, we it's like it's like we we made all these purchases and we either, you know, if they were food stuffs, we consumed them, we broke them, whatever, we can't return them. Now we just have to pay the bill, and the bill's going to be coming in every two years for the next decade and a half. And, and as you're talking about bills, I mean, you're just writing, too, about, about uh, things that are on the state's credit card bill. I mean, something that we've been doing, something that is, is not the best practice in your own home finances, right, is you're using credit card debt to pay off credit card debt to pay off credit card debt. That's called bankruptcy in most people's homes, and that's what is happening. And he's in a little tiff with the state treasurer about this. Uh, yes, he is, because for, for the second year in a row, they're bumping heads over something called bond premiums, which is basically we're just paying a higher rate when we're borrowing money. Uh, Sometimes on Wall Street, it's advantageous for someone to have a bond at a higher rate. That's not a problem if we take the extra money we receive and immediately use it to begin paying on the money we just borrowed. It sounds a little confusing, like a back and forth situation. We don't do that. We pay the higher rate. We take the money and we put it in our budget and spend it. It's like taking out a loan and using it to buy your groceries. Um, we did that last year for the first time. We were actually counting on about $160 million in bond premiums. The treasurer said it was dangerous. We haven't hit that target this year. And even so, though she tried to compromise with the governor and, and modify her projections and say, OK, I'm, I'm willing to count on some bond premiums we haven't secured yet, but investors may not want to give them. And now she's still saying, even with that modified position of hers, the governor's budget's about $74 million out of balance. So, Danielle, one of the things that's, that's important about all this is if indeed cuts are coming, certainly they are, uh, before we even get to raising new revenue to pay for the government that's already too expensive, cuts don't necessarily hit everyone equally, right? If you, if you cut government across the board, mm-hmm. there are going to be some uh, that are going to feel it much more than others. We heard from 10-year-old Sammy, but we've had people from the hospitals and from social service providers uh, asking questions of the governor. Certainly towns and cities are worried about what's going to happen to them under his budget plan. I mean, how exactly is this felt? I mean, what are you hearing from people, constituents around the state about what they're going to feel out of these budget cuts? Well, I mean, you've, you've already seen, 
you know, the parents of developmentally disabled adults, for instance, coming up to the Capitol with just, you know, stories as as heartrending as, as Sammy's. I mean, you know, these are really painful things for people. You know, the hospitals come up and they have their folks. I mean, it's just, you know, a, a litany when you sit through these appropriations committee hearings, you know, over and over again, you just hear, you know, how much pain this is causing. I mean, Keith brought up bonding, which, you know, uh, is, is interesting because, you know, you, you wonder when will um, things really change? For instance, you know, every month we go to the Bond Commission meeting and, you know, there's playgrounds and there's, you know, uh, all kinds of pet little projects and, and they always, everything passes unanimously. I mean, when are we going to get to the point when these really challenging questions are going to have to be asked and people won't get their dog pound and people won't get, you know, because that's what... The, to, to a large degree, this, that's where this crisis to some degree is rooted. And ultimately, you know, people are going to have to say, no, maybe it is the kinder general or Dan Malloy that, that and ultimately does that. Well, I, but to be fair, and this is something you've reported on for years, Keith, is you have these bond commission uh, meetings and there's a lot of stuff approved. Not necessarily all this money is actually then borrowed. And sure. so they're saying yes to a lot of dog pounds that don't ever get built. Yeah, that that's another problem we're having. We've approved so much bonding. We can't afford to actually go to Wall Street, though, and bond borrow the money every time because once you borrow it, you have to start making payments. Just two quick things on what Daniela said. One, thank you so much for telling me you find bonding interesting. I knew I wasn't the only one. Um, but she, all kidding aside, though, she raises a really good point. You know, this budget is so designed, I would say, politically more than others. It's one thing to say we're going to cut support services for AIDS patients and needle exchange programs and teen pregnancy prevention programs. It's another thing to say we're taking – out of the Department of Social Services or Department of Mental Health. One sounds really scary, and one is just a number. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dan Cloud, you have a thought? Well, the one thing that that it's become apparent as I followed Keith's reporting and Danielle's and everybody else on this is that too much of the or so much of the state budget is on automatic, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, there are huge parts of the budget uh, that that drive costs, pension, uh, medical benefits and and so on and so forth, over which the legislature on a, on a yearly basis has virtually no control. And those uh, those automatic increases that you see every year, eleven percent in some cases, drive down the uh, the ability of of the legislature to deal with discretionary issues. Well, and that's what and the governor is saying, Daniela, this time around. He, he wants to change the way we budget, but he doesn't want to do this. You know, we just take the number from last year and add a certain something to it and go mm-hmm. forward. He's saying we need to change the way we actually do budgeting. Think about the things we've got money for and pay for those as opposed to just <laughs> saying what we want to do and then just adding it up from last year. Well, that sounds fairly sensible. I mean, can we actually get there? Well, the devil's in the details, right? Um, you know, he, he's talking about long-term structural changes. One of the things he's talking about is changing the way, uh, giving more uh, power to commissioners and agency heads. Um, that will go over well with the legislature. Not <laughs> um, <laughs> why would they? Why would they agree to that? Um, for example. So, I mean, it, it, it's extremely complicated. Well, and, and, and not only that, as our Harriet Jones reported yesterday, there's some. Con- Concern that if that line item uh, power gets taken away from the legislature, do we even have public hearings yeah. anymore? I yeah. mean, do we have a public hearing in front of a committee that or a, a commission that just gets a certain amount of money? I don't know that that necessarily works. So, Colin, I don't know. I mean, we it sounds very, very dire. Uh, 
Keith and I were talking earlier, and, and we, we, we were talking about what Connecticut wants to be. We talk about needing to rebuild the transportation infrastructure. we got to have a social safety net that takes care of people. But then we're also very, very concerned that hedge fund managers and other people don't leave the state. I mean, part of this seems like we're a little confused as to what we're supposed to be and who we're supposed to take care of with this money that we have. Yeah, well, thanks for piling all that on my lap. Um, I, I, you know, now fix it. I just, uh, I mean, just to sort of round out the points that have been made here. So, I mean, the, the, this is an old idea, the one that Dan's talking about. It used to be called zero-based budgeting. I don't think they use that term anymore. But in 1980, that's what it was called. Yeah. And the problem with the other thing, the thing where where you pile a little bit more on top of the pile that you already have every year, as Keith can tell you, is that that, that strategy is dependent on commensurate revenue growth. Uh, and if the revenue growth doesn't happen, uh, then you get the, the, the situation that Keith's talking about, where you have effectively borrowed this money from somewhere. Uh, you know, you're, you're already running a government that cost X. You're not raising X in revenue. So where are you going to get that money? Yeah, and I think that that, that problem of commensurate rev- revenue growth, Keith, is something that we see once again. One of the reasons we don't have the revenues, not even you know in out-year budgets, but the, in this particular year budget, we keep running these deficits. It's because we have certain tax expectations, and they're not collecting that much. That is the big cautionary tale for people who say, well, just raise the you know income tax on rich people. Raise the income tax on rich people, and rich people start having really crappy years like they have, and all of a sudden, we don't have the money again. No, I mean, it, there, there absolutely is a trade-off, and, and, and you're correct in that. Connecticut's uh, income tax, a big part of it comes from Wall Street, and that section of the income tax in good times used to grow on average almost 20 percent a year. I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Now, we've had one year of double-digit positive growth since the Great Recession, and we've been getting single digits pretty consistently. On the other hand, though, Connecticut still has a lot of room where it could go before it runs into uh, the rates in New York, New Jersey, let alone New York City. I'm just talking about New York State. I mean, the unions still want to have that discussion. That's that's something that I think is still going to come up because implied in, in the, the budget message that you get from the governor is, OK, these are some ugly cuts. In fact, I'm going to try to arrange this budget in a nebulous way so you don't have to look at them. But what's implicit in that is if we do this, we won't have to raise taxes. And what I'm saying, what the numbers show is even if you do this, Next year, you get to come back and raise taxes. I, a last thought, a tweet from Jeff who says, state employee pension and benefits reform has to be included, not just across the board cuts. And the governor tried to tackle this in some plans for how he's going to pay out the pensions over years. But is something much more structurally different going to have to happen? I mean, yes, we've made obligations to people over the course of many, many years, and that's the foundation of many of the problems. Is there going to have to be something else that happens here, Keith? Probably we'll be, we will be passing costs on the future generations because best case scenario, the pension fund payment, just state employee pension fund payment triples over the next um, 15 years. Worst case, it quadruples. I mean the same problem with retirement health care. Um, it's not – people say, oh, I understand the problem. You're telling me there's water in the basement. What can it be? One or two inches. And I'm saying, no, it's five feet. <laughs> That's the problem. The amount of money coming due, people think it, it just can't be that bad. It is. Uh, a, a rosy assessment of the state uh, budget situation from Keith Faniff, our state budget <laughs> reporter, who reports for the Connecticut Mirror. Daniela Altamari is here, statehouse reporter for the Hartford Current. Dan Clow, who's a lawyer who writes about the law at appealinglybrief.com, and our own Colin McEnroe. When we come back, we're going to talk about a very important issue that's gaining national attention in, attention right here in Connecticut. It's the opiate, uh, opiate crisis, and also talk about whether or not we should legalize marijuana in the state. That's next where we live. 
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, Governor Dan Malloy will join us to take questions from you. Of course, you can always email us those questions. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live, or you can give us a call tomorrow. Uh, your questions for Governor Dan Malloy in studio tomorrow. Today, it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We've been talking about the governor and the budget with Daniela Altamari of the Hartford Current, Keith Faniff of the Connecticut Mirror, lawyer Dan Clow, and also our own Colin McEnroe. Now, the heroin epidemic continues to affect Connecticut. Just yesterday, a 21-year-old Waterford man died of a heroin overdose. Congressman Joe Courtney took part in a meeting to talk about federal funding to help combat this problem. The good news is is about a billion dollars in new money to help with issues of lack of treatment beds, um, detox facilities, um, you know, helping law enforcement deal with first responder issues. The bad news is, is that that measure is for 2017, and obviously, um, you know, the world's on fire right now. And in southeastern Connecticut, Colin, certainly the world is on fire. This is a huge problem, but it's also a problem across New England. Joe Courtney, they're talking about a billion dollars coming a year from now. That's a billion with a B from the federal government for basically all of the states. Meanwhile, we've got problems of people not being able to get into facilities here in Connecticut. And with the budget crisis looming here, I don't know that's going to get necessarily better. Um, yeah, the national drug czar was here, but are we, are we paying even too little attention right now to the drug problem in Connecticut? Of course we are. And this is a massive moral failure of our society. Uh, if I mean, you... Uh, you have, we'll have to live a pretty cloistered life not to at least know some family who has faced this problem of having a family member who needs treatment and scrambling around to find the treatment, trying to figure out the places where public money will follow you to the facility versus places where they won't. But the truth is the treatment options of any kind are very, very limited and not very successful for the most part. If this were any other kind, I mean, 723 people died in the state of Connecticut in 2015 from hard drugs. I mean, if this were terrorism, you know, I mean, ter- home grown and other kinds of terrorism doesn't kill anything like that amount of people. But we have these national dialogues about this. There's a, there are many, many preventable deaths and a lot of other human misery piled up here that really screams out to be addressed. And, and you know, even I know it's hard to look long term at any kind of budget question, but the sooner we deal with problems like this, the better off we are in terms of actually saving money. It costs a lot of money also to have somebody that sick from this disease. And one of the reasons I think that so much more attention is being paid to this problem, in particular opiate addiction, is because the the economics of opiate production and distribution have fundamentally changed. So when I was growing up, uh, heroin addicts tended to be viewed as, you know, coming from impoverished communities. Today... For five dollars, you can buy uh, you, you can buy a bag to shoot up. It is in the high schools. It's in middle class, uh, largely white communities, certainly upper class communities. It is affecting everybody, all econo- across the economic spectrum. And now that uh, those folks are finally feeling um, uh, the horror of this. There's a, a greater response or more noises being made. And I guess I wonder, Daniel, what's going to happen this year at the state legislature? Are state lawmakers going to take this as seriously as it seems the federal government is trying to take this now? Yeah, there's been uh, already some proposals uh, to increase, you know, the the availability of this antidote. They did do some things last year as well, um, although, you know, uh, other states, um, you know, notably Massachusetts, you know, this seems to have a little bit of a higher profile. 
um, than it has in Connecticut, but that that could change this session. And you talk about the, the standard of this is Narcan yeah. or naloxone, yeah. which if you put in the hands of first responders yeah. or even people who know people who are users, it really can help to save lives. So yeah. this is something they're going to be talking more about. Keith, this all comes up just as we run low on time here about another conversation. It seems like an almost impossible conversation to have right now. Some lawmakers have floated the idea of legalization of marijuana. Now, of course, there is a uh, a, a legal prescription marijuana law in place in Connecticut. But it seems like in the midst of this drug crisis having to do with, frankly, a much different and much harder drug, any conversation about legalization of uh, recreational marijuana, I just can't see it goes anywhere. And Governor Malloy seems to agree. Yeah, it's it's an election year. I mean, and, and I was joking during the break, it's not like it would be a big uh, boon to the budget anyway. But I can't envision anybody taking this up, especially a year when everybody's nervous that the, the electorate is really ticked off about uh, the budget. I just I couldn't see anyone pushing that hard this year. I think the supporters would be thrilled if they just got a public hearing on a bill at this point this year. Let, never mind getting it passed. But I guess I just wonder, Colin, if, if indeed we're, we're moving past the point, yes, we had some states out, out west that, that legalized this, and I, I'm not making certainly an equivalency between the hard drug and the, the terrible scourge of heroin, but the fact is is that many scientists who have studied this closely say it's it's probably right to say that marijuana use can be a gateway to other drug use. Will Connecticut, in the midst of this crisis, really have a serious conversation about legalizing marijuana while we're, you know, having funerals for kids who are overdosing on heroin? Yeah, I mean, decriminalization is one thing, right? And I think most people now agree that we've locked up, you know, way too many people for insane reasons. And I mean, there's a general societal national consensus on that. Legalization is a whole other frontier. Now, one smoke signal, if you pardon the expression, that that people, (laughs) that the state might be considering this somewhere down the line is that I think it was last month. The DOT held a summit for cops to talk about how you handle traffic stops uh, in a climate of legalized marijuana. So in other words, it's not going to be legal to drive stoned, presumably. But in fact, it's harder to to do field tests uh, for marijuana. THC dissipates more quickly in the system than alcohol does. So they're starting to have that conversation. But yeah, in, in... you know, given everything we just talked about with heroin, Lynn Boyle, who's occupied every criminal justice and prosecutorial position imaginable at the state and federal level, said he's always kind of darkly amused by the term recreational marijuana use. You know, I'm like, it's not like going out on the gym, you know, and swinging on the swings. <laughs> um, recreational, particularly when you when you start looking down the road at, at heroin and stuff like that. It seems like an odd term. Uh, Colin McEnroe is the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Going to be talking about heart health this afternoon on the show. Thank you so much, Colin. Thank you, sir. Also, thanks to Dan Clough. He's a lawyer who writes about the law at appealinglybrief.com. Always good to see you, Dan. Thanks for having me, John. Thanks to Keith Spanoff. He's the state budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks for all the cheery news, Keith. Thank you. Hail budget. <laughs> and Daniela Altamari, <laughs> who's state house reporter for the Hartford Current. Thank you, Daniela. Thanks. Our program, as always, is produced by Tucker with Lydia Brown. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Solarski. Thanks to our interns, Tiana Duquette, Ben Esty, and Ross Levin. You can continue this conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on CTN, the Connecticut Network, where they take videos of this stuff. I'm John Dankosky. This is Where We Live.